Well, good morning. As a lot of us are gathered online and virtually, um, I want to say that we miss you and we look forward to a, a season where we can all be together again and we'll be, Rusty will be letting us know a little bit more as we develop in the next weeks of what we'll be doing. Um, but it is missed not having a big gym pool of our family here. Um, this morning we're going to be continuing in Matthew, so Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. He sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Dear God, just thank you so much for your consistent provision. Um, we ended out 2020 and started this new year. Just thank you for the reminder that you are consistent, that you care about your people care about the hurt in the world, and that you do not leave us hopeless. Uh, this morning, as we just continue to look at the greatness that is you coming into your creation to save us, um, let's just find the hope that is offered in that and help it have encouragement through what could be more hard times this year. And all things we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. We have made it to 2021. Um, and 2020 is no more, thankfully. Uh, if you've been looking on Facebook posts and memes, you've probably seen things about people who like screaming out, we've made it, uh, or we got through it, or 2020 was the worst year of ever in history. And, um, and now that 2021 is here, our salvation is at hand, apparently, according to the Facebook posts. This past year has been very challenging for a lot of us. Um, some of us have had the worst year of our lives. Um, some of us may be looking at 2020 and saying it wasn't that bad. Maybe you got married. Maybe you started a family. Maybe you started a new career choice or something great happened that you look back on and say, you know what, that was, that was actually not a bad year. And then I think most of us would probably fall under this category. Good morning, guys. Um, most of us would probably fall under this category that 2020 was both sometimes good, sometimes joyful, and other times really hard. Uh, other times full of tragedy and anxiety and fear. Um, and to be honest, as we look to 2021, even though you know all our friends and all the news outlets might be saying that this is the year, this is the, what's going to be better, a lot of things that were problems in 2020, like coronavirus, are still existing and around. As you can see, we're meeting virtually. So, um, these feelings that we've had and suffered with this past year of heartbreak and tragedy and anger, anger and a feeling of hopelessness, something I've seen compared to previous years is this year, I don't see as many people posting those typical resolutions, I'm going to go lose weight, or I'm going to read that book. Instead, I'm seeing a lot more people talk about their big hope that's for 2021. 
Like 2021 is, is the year that things get back on track for me. 2021 is the year that my job will rehire me, that I'll get the house that I'm hoping for, that uh, my presidential candidate will be elected. Um, and so there's a lot of just hope being passed around versus this typical meaningless, I would say, resolutions that typically don't get fulfilled. Um, most people know that uh, within the first month of that losing weight goal or going to the gym more, it typically falls off really quickly. It's this general idea being promoted that we have survived or escaped the previous year, and it's coming from this built-up anxiety that we've carried over through the past year. To give a simple definition to anxiety, it's the feeling we have when we lose control of something that we really care about. In 2020, a lot of things that we thought we would never lose control over happened. Many people had secured jobs and careers and then found themselves unemployed and furloughed. Many loved ones that we thought we had more time with here on earth died. There's all kinds of different struggles with housing, with marriages, with kids and schools and relationships. And for many people who struggle like me with a control idol, this year's been a testing year. Now, my wife could easily tell you, if we're talking about anxiety, that I am not an expert on anxiety. Um, we've had many, many conversations where she is trying to express to me her feelings of anxiety, and I am trying to listen. And if you've ever seen this popular video of a wife sitting with a nail in her head, talking about her feelings about the nail and talking about what that's causing to her and how that's affecting her life, and the husband's just sitting there going, there's a nail in your head, and I, I, I want to come up with a solution to take out the nail, and, and you just keep offering the same solution. Like, I think I understand what you're saying, but I think the solution is we take out the nail. Um, and it's just a really funny but great analogy to why, like, how guys and girls relate differently, um, but also why it's so hard to understand someone else's anxiety. It's because we all experience it differently. For me, I get anxiety when I'm driving and I haven't realized that, or I've made a wrong turn, but I haven't realized it yet. So what that means, like uh, a few weeks ago, me and my wife were driving back home from Georgia. And of course, you know Georgia traffic, we hit traffic in Atlanta. Um, and so my GPS tells me that there is an alternative route that I can go around and move around the traffic. And I was like, sure. So hop on this alternative road, get off the highway, start going down these back roads, start going past all these stop signs and everything. And all of a sudden I start to notice these cars in the other lane. It's a single lane road. And I start noticing the cars on the other side are bumper to bumper, just jam packed back. And it just, we just keep speeding past them. And I'm just like, start noticing to my wife, I'm like, man, like these people are gonna be in line for like hours, like this just keeps going. And then all of a sudden, this fear creeps in. And I'm going, at first I'm like, don't they know that there's like an alternate path around this traffic? Like you just, just get in the other lane and you can go around it. And all of a sudden I go, they probably do know. And there's something ahead in the road that I don't know yet. And I'm gonna get turned around and I'm gonna be at the back of this incredibly long line. So the fear just keeps growing and growing, and I get quiet in the car. My wife's like, what's wrong? And I'm like, I just need to make sure we get back on the highway. I, 
I, we keep passing all these cars, and I just, I really don't want to be at the back of this line. And uh, thankfully, we actually made it through. I don't know what was holding up traffic on the other side, but for that 10 to 15 minutes, as we passed by car after car, I really just had this fear that I'd made a huge mistake. The anxiety can cause us to feel all kinds of different things, worried, depressed, alone, crushed. And when we get into this state, a big problem that develops is we become aware that we are being anxious, that we have this fear and this worry, and then we start basically criticizing ourselves, saying uh, that we're weak, calling ourselves weak, calling our, thinking that there's something wrong with us. That's why we feel this way. Which that just creates like this vicious cycle of more anxiety as our anxiety multiplies because not only do you have this natural cause that's causing this, that's making this happen in your life, but now you're adding it on to yourself because you're like, not only is this happening that I don't like, but I don't like the way I feel about it. For some, we, uh, when we get stuck in this cycle, we look for an escape. We look for some type of resolution to bring us out of this, some type of future hope that we can look to and say that if all these, all these feelings and all these problems I have, if this could just happen, or if I could just have this, then things would get better. Things would be okay, I wouldn't feel this way anymore. And psychologists call this escapism. And it's basically this path of dealing with our problems and our feelings and emotions in a way that involves the least amount of conflict. You don't have to go stand face to face with somebody and talk about how they hurt you or talk about how insecure they made you feel. You don't have to, uh, it also offers uh, a way that seems very comfortable because instead of having to face the problem, admit there's something maybe weak about you, you can just ignore it. You can run and hide and and suppress it with distractions. I feel like in our time, escapism is more dangerous and more enticing than in the past because our society is built up on distractions and this immediate satisfaction that we can get. We have social media where we get this filtered, polished world that we get to view everything through to only the best photos and only the happiest memories and the cutest puppies and the best pictures of your kid get posted. They don't show you know, the, the screaming match before the kid and after of you taking the photo. Um, they don't show uh, you know, the fights in the relationship. You just see the cute date that you went on. We also have things like Netflix, YouTube, TikTok, and other video things that basically offer this endless buffet of content that just tell us that we can shut off our mind for an hour for the length of a movie, for the length of a series, or a season, or just a whole you know, television program. Uh, and really, there's just no end to it. You know, you, there's no shame in coming and saying like, look, I just started this, this TV show, and I've watched all eight seasons now in a weekend. And everybody's like, that's so cool, let's talk about it. And no one goes, that's kind of weird. You know, like that's, you've spent the whole weekend watching eight seasons that took eight years of television to make. Now that's just naming some of the more socially acceptable idols that we have in our world. If we were to add things like pornography, drugs, and more explicit idols, we would see this endless amount of distractions enticing us to the lie of, es of escaping our problems that the world, the devil, and especially our own flesh are tempting us to.
If we were all gathered together, we would normally have a little time to, to actually share and respond um, to things in, the, in our sermon. And so today I've just written down a few lists of some things, but just naming some things that we are looking for to give us false hope. I call them if-only statements. So as we look through this past year, for some of us, our if-only statement was if my candidate could get elected, my life will be better. If only we'll have a new president, my life will be okay. It'll start to get back on track. We'll see justice restored to this country. And some of y'all had the reverse. You were already feeling that, and then your candidate didn't win, and now you feel like all hope is lost. For others, there's the idea that a vaccine is going to save things. It's going to make their life better. Um, it'll allow them to go to the grocery store the way they want, in pajamas and no mask, or uh, if they want to be able to have as big of a party at their house as they want, or whatever other normal thing that we now have to think about and limit due to the coronavirus, they look for this vaccine to be the ultimate hope this year. I had a group text message with some of the guys in the church, and um, I had asked if you could share some of your if-only statements so I could kind of get some more perspective. Um, and, and one of the first ones I got back was someone had posted a picture of a Lamborghini. Uh, so that was their if-only for 2021, if they could just get that car. Um, another one, without any context, was just a picture of a cabin in a snowy mountain with a fireplace going, and it looked like nothing else around it. Um, and so... Uh, others started posting some more real things about how if COVID-19 would not be a thing anymore, um, my, my life, my job, everything could just go back to normal. I could feel like I'm whole and complete again. Well, jobs, marriages, families, homes, travel, we could go on and on about a list of things that we want to place our hope in for this coming year. And as we get into the text today, we see a tragedy that brings anxiety, worry, fear, depression, and mourning. But also, we see a better and true hope in the form of Jesus Christ. So as Rusty and Tim talked about in the past verses of this chapter, the disruption that Jesus' birth caused was not good news to everyone. Herod was fearful of the prophecy of a child who was born king of the Jews. And after his attempt to locate the child through the wise men failed, he became desperate to cling to his power, and he orders the murder of every boy in Bethlehem that is two years old or under. Now imagine being a family in Bethlehem at this time. Imagine the fear and anxiety and overwhelming as soldiers march through your city, going door to door, searching for your son, searching for your brother. Hearing the screams and the tears as the government comes in and legally is murdering your son or your brother, and you're powerless to stop them. As they mourn their loss of the children, they probably were crying out to God, where is the justice? What is the purpose of this? Have you abandoned us? They felt powerless completely out of control of the situation, and losing hope. Does that sound familiar to anyone given this past year? Moments where we felt powerless, losing control, 
doubting if there was hope. I'm sure all of us have had moments of this in the past year, asking God why, what is the purpose, and having trouble seeing hope in this. Towards the end of this past year, my wife and I found out that apart from God miraculously changing my body, I have a genetic disorder that will not allow me to naturally have children. And even though I know someone who has actually lost a child, and the loss of that would feel way, way worse, as we mourned the news and cried, I kept asking why, looking for some reason, some excuse as to what the purpose was behind this, some way to make sense of the pain I was feeling. I'm sure a lot of us this past year have experienced intense pain like that as well, and if not this past year, at some point in your life you have. Tell people problems. As we remember and feel the pain of the past hurts of this year, we see Matthew shows us the purpose behind the pain. He even looks at the, the pain that's happening in Bethlehem in this narrative right now and relates it back to Jeremiah chapter 31. You see, in, in Jeremiah, or actually in verse 18, this quotation is actually taken from Jeremiah and and this is referring to a time when God allowed Israel to be captured. The tears are for oh, sorry. <laughs> the tears are for those who were going into captivity and into exile. And the tears were for Israel as it no longer was a nation. But now we see the tears are not going for the people or the tears are not for those who are going into captivity, but for those who stayed in Bethlehem and were slaughtered. So why is that good news? Why does that bring us any hope? Well, if the enemy had been successful in killing the Lamb of God and stopping the saving work of Christ, then it would not be good news. We would continue to cry, and there would be hopelessness. But our God and our King was not stopped. He was not thwarted. He has heard the cries of his people that started with its people's capture and exile and continue in their oppression and their slaughter in Bethlehem. And he has come not just to overthrow one wicked king. He's not come just not just to restore a certain land or bring comfort to a certain people group. He has come to redeem, to bring about our salvation in the form of his perfect work and new covenant. Where his kingdom is established, where grace and mercy is given to his people and justice is brought to the wicked. You see, this passage that is referred back to in Jeremiah doesn't stop just with the, the mentioning of them, their captivity and exile and the suffering that came with that. Chapter 31 continues in verse 17 with the Lord saying, There's hope for your future, declares the Lord. In verse 25, he continues, For I will satisfy the weary soul, and every languishing soul I will replenish. And finally, chapter 31 wraps up this ultimate promise that he's giving us. 
It says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, where I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when they took them, when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law with them. Uh, sorry, I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And that last part of that promise, I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Charles Spurgeon, when he was preaching on this passage in Jeremiah, he said, if we could elaborate on that promise that I will be their God and they will be my people, and we can add our fancy words and our extended knowledge and try to somehow expand this promise and offer more meaning. He said it, it couldn't possibly have more meaning or have more or have a better way of saying than simply God stating, I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, church, unlike the rest of the world that is constantly searching for hope and security, our great hope is that he is our God and we are his. So in thinking about this promise and thinking about what this hope means to us, we're just going to look at a few conclusions that because this is true and because this is our hope, brings us to action of things that we should and must do. First, we must use this promise. What I mean by use this promise is to see it as a tool just as much as it is encouraging words. Essentially, we cannot put too much on this promise that God becomes weary of us. When we look at other religions and we look at their false idols, we can see that through history that they have the dedication and the passion to make some kind of altar or, or statue out of stone or wood, and then when they need rain, they can go you know, do this ceremony for rain. When they need food, they can make this sacrifice and try to get food. We can see even today in other religions, you see certain statues have these special, special places in houses and in temples. You can see that they have special uses going into battle, going into war, that they, they hold up these statues thinking that they will bring some type of, of, of power to them. And the falseness of of their belief, we can compare to how we act with this true promise that we have. What I mean is, we look at the lie that they have and the dedication they put into these idols compared to us having the truth and allowing this promise to sit unused a lot of times. As a people, we should take this promise to mean that we can approach the throne of God and sit before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords and bring our brokenness and our ugliness our sin and how hurt we are and we can be restored and time after time again he will not fail to do that he will not say that you need to go clean yourself and be better before you can come before my presence he allows us to enter into his presence as is as broken as we are and be redeemed and restored the second thing I see from this promise that we need to 
understand and, and appreciate is, is that we need to rejoice in the preciousness of this promise. Now, this doesn't mean that we ignore the feelings of anger and hurt and loneliness and sadness. But it means that when we're feeling that, we don't have to say, that's the end of it. We, when we say, we can say things like, I'm feeling lonely right now, but I'm not alone because I belong to my God. He will never leave me. We can say that I'm hurt or I'm angry, and we don't have to all of a sudden just erase that and pretend like that doesn't happen, that we don't have those emotions because we're, we're Christians and we're supposed to just be happy all the time. We can feel those things because our, our God actually appreciates and wants us to feel these emotions and then wants us to, show, to find in our weakness that he makes us strong. The preciousness of this promise is not only just that we have access to God, but that he doesn't just say that, that he might be our God if we can work up enough righteousness. He doesn't say that he might fulfill the promises that he is ours and we are his if we can just do good deeds or live a good enough life. He makes this promise to us in our sin, in our brokenness, when we have nothing to offer him, and in restoring us, changes our lives and brings us our life purpose. This promise offers us freedom, and that is why we rejoice free from the shame and guilt of our sin, free from the shadow of death that we were living in, free because our abilities and our own works could do nothing to save us. But the completed work of Christ that started with the disruption that he caused as he entered into his own creation and continues all the way through to the finished and perfect atonement for his people on the cross that has saved and redeemed us. As we think about promises and future hope, um, I was thinking through one way to just relate what the world's promise is versus ours. I was thinking of uh, one of my favorite basketball players, one that, uh, that actually died this past year, Kobe Bryant. He, uh, he, there's several stories of NBA players that have almost the exact same experience when challenging him. Uh, he would, they would have an NBA game coming up, and the morning of, they would plan to go to the gym and shoot 500, 600 shots, 1,000 shots before the game just to be ready to face Kobe. They would, they would plan to get there before the rest of the team, and they would get into the gym, and across the court, Kobe Bryant would already be there shooting. And they would say he wasn't just shooting at, you know, like a lazy shots or anything. He was going at game speed the whole time. So other players come in, the team practices and warms up before the, the match that night. And one player's still going, and he's ready to leave the gym, but he doesn't want to be the last to walk out. So he looks over. Kobe Bryant's still there, shooting, playing at game speed, getting ready. And eventually, he can't do it anymore. He has to go to the locker room. He has to rest for his game. And, uh, and later, he, he, after the game, he lost to Kobe. And he goes up to him and says, hey, man, I saw you. Like, man, how do you do it? And Kobe tells him, I saw you. And I knew that I could not let you outwork me. And I had to tell you, that no matter how hard you work, no matter how much you do, I will always be there doing more. 
that, that story and those multiple stories of the exact same experience with multiple players developed this commercial that Nike did where Kobe Bryant basically just is standing there and he just basically is saying more and people ask him, like questions come up on the screen or people ask him the question and, and he just keeps saying more and they say, how much more? And he says, more. And that's what this world's hope essentially is, is that you cannot uh, find any level of success any level of the perfect family, perfect relationship, the, the dream house, the perfect job, whatever it is, there will always be something that will leave you feeling more. And so if we put our hope of 2021 in a vaccine, in a, a politician, in a job, in, in whatever, we are going to find that we are just going to be at the end, whether we, those goals get met or not, we're going to be saying more. And thankfully, we have a true hope that is in Christ that does not leave us saying more. It satisfies us and fulfills us. So as we start out this year, let's not make our hopes and dreams be dependent on these things. Let us face the challenges, the hurt, and the good things that will come this next year with the knowing, that, knowing and resting in the finished work of Christ and the promise that he will always be with us. Let's pray. Dear God, just thank you so much for a reminder this morning of the purpose of why you came and entered into your creation. Not because we deserved it, not because our actions could somehow meet yours and together we could accomplish salvation, but that you alone had to come in and pull us from death to life and save us. God, as Many of our friends will tell us that this year is going to be a better year and a lot of hope is being built into what the potentials will be. We know that this year might be good, might be bad, might be worse than the past year. But we don't have to let that crush us. We don't have to let that destroy us because we know our hope is secure and solidified in your completed work, in your kingdom that is established. Thank you so much, God, for your redemption. And as we come to the table, just uh, help us to trust and hope, believe in you, and to leave here motivated not to, not to work and accomplish so that you're proud of us, but to work in knowing that you have already finished the work that is our salvation. Amen. So we are, uh, sorry to hear myself out here. <laughs> so our next thing is we'll be coming to the table. And for a lot of you at home, um, this will look a little differently. But I would encourage you as families to gather around and pray together and share encouragement with each other. Before we do this, uh, we just want to remind that, that the, the communion and the representation of what it is is for those who are in Christ and are believing that his work only is what can save us. So we ask that if you are not in that, if you are not believing in the finished work of Christ, that you would, instead of taking the communion, that you would take Christ. We'll take a moment to close our eyes and just reflect, like we do most weeks, ask some of these simple questions. Am I a follower of Jesus? Am I unreconciled with any fellow 
follower of Jesus? Am I at peace with a sinful action or desire in my life? And as we come to the table, let's discuss what idols do we need to bring to the table? What wounds do we need to bring to the table? What lies that we're believing need to be brought to the table? Let's go and share encouragement with one another.